Hey Sandra, do you know there's a real Andre Baptiste, the Liberian dictator from the Lord of War movie? Is there an Andre Jr. too? Yeah, his name is Chucky. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he and his friend Bill Horace used to crucify people for stealing vegetables. That's so insane and sadistic. I mean, ugh. But did he do that before or after his rap rehearsals? Well, probably both, but he did not get to become a famous rapper anyway. He's making rhymes in prison now. Good. <laughs> hey, Sandra, and hello, premium doobie friends. Hey, Neil, what do we have for our favorite people this week? Well, we did that episode about Victor Boot, the Russian arms dealer named the Merchant of Death. We talked about the inspiration for Andre Baptiste, the fictional dictator of Liberia. But there's a real-life Andre Baptiste, so we should tell our friends the true story, I think. Yes, and to be honest, the true story is more brutal than the rather short story of Andre Baptiste depicted in the movie. The real-life person that inspired the fictional Andre Baptiste is named Charles Taylor, like the shoes, and his life story includes two successful revolutions which overthrew an African nation and escaped from a United States prison with the help of U.S. intelligence agents, genocide, mass rape and murder, and a partnership with the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. I mean, if he wasn't so big on political revolutions, rape, murder, and genocide... He could have been with Hush Puppy in the VIP section of a Formula One race with those credentials. <laughs> <laughs> and considering the former president of Formula One got fired for organizing Nazi-themed orgies, they probably would have let one or two of them slide, so... <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Well, what can we say? We are ruled over by absolute psychos. Uh, we just have the lonely task of telling people stories about all of it, I guess. So, where are we going to start with Charles Taylor, not the good Chuck Taylor on the Converse basketball shoes, the genocidal one from Liberia? <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it, that the first ever basketball shoe endorsement by an NBA player has the same name as a lunatic African warlord. I mean, I used to have those shoes in the 1990s. I think we all did. If you were a uh, delinquent punk rock or heavy metal kid like we were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, yeah. Anyways, uh, the story really has to begin with the country involved. Liberia was a sort of altruistic attempt at anti-colonial colonialism by slavery abolitionists from New England. The idea was, rather than continue to fight over whether or not freed slaves were property in the U.S., freed slaves would have the option to return to their home continent and be set up in an established country that would trade with the U.S. And so Liberia was that country. Between 1822 and the end of the American Civil War in the 1860s, the American Colonization Society sent about 13,000 freed slaves back to Africa to settle Liberia. Most of these people were of mixed race and had been born and educated in the U.S., so they self-identified differently from the local population back in West Africa. They were mostly Christians, and the local population was not. They spoke English or some other Western European language, and the local population did not speak their same language either. 
Naturally, all of this gave those people an advantage economically and politically. After all, Americans were funding and facilitating this resettlement and trade between West Africa and the U.S., so those who were educated in the U.S. or Europe spoke English or at least a European language and had familiarity with U.S. or European business practices were going to wind up in charge of Liberia, for lack of a better word. And the American Liberians remained in charge from the mid-19th century all the way until 1980. And the last American Liberian president of Liberia before Charles Taylor was William Tolbert. It should be noted that all of these people who descended from resettled slaves tended to keep Anglo-sounding names. In any case, Tolbert was overthrown and executed by a revolution organized from an indigenous faction within his own army, led by a sergeant in the Liberian army named Samuel Doe. And one more thing that's rarely mentioned, but worth noting here for context. The collapse of the European colonies in the Caribbean and the end of American slavery did not simply go unnoticed without retribution in Europe. Uh, they were used to having cheap sugar, cheap precious metals, cheap cotton, and all of the other cheap raw materials that the slave trade provided. So what were they going to do about all of this? Well, colonize Africa, of course. In 1870, less than 10% of Africa was subject to colonial rule. By the beginning of World War I in 1914, 90% of Africa was subject to colonial rule. In fact, Liberia was the only African country that survived both world wars without being subject to foreign colonial rule. Ethiopia was independent during World War I, but they were subjected to colonial rule by fascist Italy during World War II. And shortly after World War I, Liberia struck the corporate deal with an American company that would ensure its independence, at least from European conquerors. The Firestone Tire and Rubber Company arrived in Liberia in the 1920s and established the world's largest rubber plantation. The terms gave Firestone the right to plant and harvest 1 million acres, about 10% of the country's total landmass, for the not-so-fair price of $1 per year for 99 years. <laughs> I mean, I mean, predictably, the one dollar was for the many in the indigenous population, but the profits from the plantation were for the few. <laughs> so Firestone took care of the ruling class. The Americo-Liberians, who were descended from those educated in the U.S. or in Europe, uh, they got much more money. They were given private plantations, which guaranteed them a certain amount of profit from the total rubber production every year. And their children, like Charles Taylor, were able to attend private schools back in the U.S. or in Europe. Taylor actually had far better educational opportunities than I did, and I'm an American citizen. So he attended a private upscale high school in Boston. And he later graduated from a private business school, uh, Bentley College, also in Massachusetts. And in exchange for these profits and perks, the American Liberians were to maintain order and thus make sure that the rubber profits flowed like the latex sap bleeding from those trees. All of this worked for almost a century until the last two American Liberian presidents beat the corrupt corporate hand that was feeding their greed. 
William Tolbert, who was mentioned earlier, was ruling a bankrupt country that was still making Firestone rich in the 1970s. So he cancelled the company's sweetheart lease deal for the million acres of rubber tree plantation and demanded that the company pay more in taxes and hire more Liberians into management roles within the company. And Firestone's answer to this perceived betrayal by Tolbert was to secretly back the indigenous-led military coup being planned by Liberian Army Sergeant Samuel Doe. After Doe's successful overthrow of the Tolbert government in 1980, he put, guess who, Charles Taylor in the office of, quote, Director of the General Services Agency for the Liberian government, or in more simple terms, the person who was in charge of all the government's procurement and purchasing. Sounds like someone else we know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Putin got his spot from a public-private collaboration role in the St. Petersburg mayor's office, too. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be a ruthless warlord in a poor country, you got to keep the purse string close. Victor Boot expects to be paid for his AK-47s, grenades, machetes, and RPGs. <laughs> yeah, he does. But when Sergeant Doe found out that Charles Taylor had stolen about a million dollars from his government, he fired him and Taylor fled back to his former home in the U.S. in Massachusetts, and there he was arrested by U.S. Marshals and was facing extradition back to Liberia to face trial for the embezzlement and fraud charges. But while in jail during the extradition hearing... Taylor escaped. The Boston Globe reported in the 1980s that he sawed through the bars of a window with four other inmates and slid down the wall of the jail with blankets knotted together as a rope. Uh, the same Boston Globe in the 2000s reported that the CIA had grown tired of Sergeant Doe's government and struck a deal with Taylor, which involved helping him escape. I think the second option sounds more plausible to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, considering that his wife and sister-in-law were complicit in his escape and were arrested and charged for helping him flee the United States, but were later released without any DOJ explanation and without going to trial. Mm. Yeah, strong CIA vibes in this. And, of course, there were nothing but geniuses working over there, like, uh, you know, the ones we know from the Reagan and Bush years who... For instance, uh, funded and armed Saddam Hussein and then changed their minds like 10 years later when he invaded Kuwait. <laughs> <laughs> Big brains, very smart, those Princeton boys, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, they were right about Putin's good-natured soul, too. <laughs> Anyways, uh, U.S. intelligence spoiler alert. The U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency admitted in 2010 that they had a, quote, working relationship with Charles Taylor in the 1980s. Uh, this all came out during Taylor's war crimes trial at The Hague. <laughs> and at this point, we are coming to the bloody details of Charles Taylor's revolution against Sergeant Doe's government. Fair warning, guys, it's grim from here on out in this episode we we kind of like try to make things more funnier in our free episodes but sometimes depending on the subject you know there's only so many jokes you can um, employ right yes, and so, yes. so many contexts in which you can employ them so fair warning now pbs and ProPublica have some excellent reporting on the liberian civil war and we'll link the printed articles in the notes but we're talking about torture murder and sexual assault 
all on a massive scale. And there are pictures and videos, which, of course, are not in an audio-only podcast, but, you know, they're out there. And remember, a lot of why we have all of these first-hand accounts is because this American corporation, the Firestone Tire Company, was caught in the middle of it. Their million-acre rubber plantation was literally square in the middle between the Liberian borders with Guinea and the Ivory Coast and the capital city of Monrovia on the other side. Taylor recruited most of his National Patriotic Front of Liberia's fighters from among the ranks of rebels against the governments of those surrounding countries. So Taylor's conquests through the eastern part of the country toward Monrovia had to pass through the Firestone Plantation eventually. And the poor civilians of Liberia, let's face it, they were screwed no matter who was in power. The American-Liberian rulers like Tolbert had intelligence police, just like we had during the Soviet days in Eastern Europe. And when Sergeant Doe overthrew Tolbert, he had his own intelligence police retaliate against people who were loyal to the prior government. So people were arrested and tortured just for being of a different ethnic faction all the time. This was every day. And when those people were released rather than killed by the intelligence police, why wouldn't they join Taylor's army if he was promising to overthrow the government that had persecuted them or some other warlord's revolutionary army? Sure. I mean, of course they would. It's a vicious cycle, and the timber, the oil, the gold, the rubber, you know, the diamond mines are always at the center of it in places like Liberia. So Sergeant Doe's government only lasted nine years before Charles Taylor had recruited his own army and was pressing toward Monrovia. They weren't much to start with, to be honest. A couple of dozen guys would pick up trucks and AK-47s going village by village, attacking people of the same ethnic lineage as Sergeant Doe's loyalists. But Doe was not a very wise defender of his own country. He was illiterate and only 28 years old when he came to power, so his response to Taylor's insurrection was to send out his own army to terrorize people who are ethnically adjacent to Taylor's army. And of course, that caused Taylor's ranks to swell as people joined his cause to fight back against the oppression of Sergeant Doe's army. And with his numbers sort of organically increasing, all Taylor lacked was enough guns and bullets to supply his growing revolutionary army. So this is where our boy Victor Boot comes back into the picture. (laughs) Victor was just the man to sell him guns and bullets, and Firestone was just the bag of money he needed to pay for them. Taylor's army was first seen approaching the Firestone plantation grounds on June 5th, 1990. Children were carrying AK-47s, just as those depicted in Andre Baptiste's boy brigades in the Lord of War film. Those too small to handle a machine gun were given grenades. And to prove their loyalty, these child soldiers were often required to kill their own parents or siblings when they were taken from their homes. And Donald Densminger, Firestone's, well, field overseer, let's be honest about titles here, told the Liberian population that he would not be responsible for Liberians caught in the war. He retreated along with most of the American and European employees of the Firestone Company to the main house reserved for the corporate office on site, referred to as House 53. We'll link a PBS article that has pictures in the notes, but 
For now, just trust me when I tell you it's a plantation house from one of the southern Confederate states in the U.S. I was going to say, yeah, because, uh, yes, we're looking at the picture as we are speaking, and yeah, that's what it looks like. Yes. Exactly. Yes, exactly. There's a nine-hole golf course. There's tennis courts. What's with these people and the golfing? I'm not I don't making know. A, I... <laughs> <laughs> There's even like a clubhouse at the golf course with a full bar. Uh, all of this within the grounds surrounding House 53 uh, in an area they call Harble Hills. And it only took one day within the plantation grounds for Taylor's rebels to start killing people from different ethnic factions in the company town below Harble Hills, less than three miles away from House 53. So at their doorstep, basically. Basically, yes. While Taylor's boy brigades were piling up bodies of those they had killed outside of the Harble grocery store, Ensminger and his American and British employees were playing cards and hitting golf balls, just putting around the green behind House 53. I mean, what scumbags? Can you imagine looking people in the face who you have seen every day for years, people you know, and say, sorry, no, good luck against the rockets and grenades? Honestly? I mean... Well, the same kind of people go to work at Chevron and Exxon every day, I suppose. Very good point, yeah. <laughs> uh, when the local employees pleaded to the management in House 53 to help them escape the random rapes and murders, um, Ensminger told them, quote, Our responsibility as an American company is to the expats. This is your country. You should take whatever action, jointly or individually, that you can take. Yeah, we'll take the money. You know, yes, you basically. take the violence that gives us all the money and all these things and gives us control. And we take the money, you take the violence and the deaths and the rapes. Pretty and, yeah. much, yes. I mean, what f action when there are teenagers high on cocaine carrying grenades and AK-47s? What are they supposed to do? Yeah, as we said, the details are pretty grim. A quote from the ProPublica article linked in the notes. One boy pointed NPFL soldiers to two Firestone workers from a rival tribe. Taylor rebels slit their throats. A few days later, the dead men's families handed the boy over to the government soldiers. They executed the boy behind the Firestone bank. Hmm. And the most tragic is the story of a woman named Mary Polly. Quote, a group of government soldiers burst into Polly's home on the Firestone Plantation just before the Americans evacuated. They dragged her and her husband, Joseph, outdoors. They stripped him to his underwear. In front of their three children, they began beating and kicking the couple, accusing them of working with Taylor's rebels. Jesus Christ. The soldiers hauled away her bleeding husband. They marched back later, demanding a ransom for his return. So Polly handed over what little money she had. The soldiers returned a day later and asked for $500 more. When she told them that she did not have any more money, the soldiers gang raped her. The next day, the soldiers killed her husband behind the whitewashed cinder block bank in Harbel. Polly decided to flee into the surrounding jungle with her children. They plodded through the bush, eating sugarcane to survive weary, afraid, and hungry for several days. Polly noticed, after three days, that the three-year-old boy she had strapped to her back had stopped moving. Monko, her youngest, had died. Later, Mary escaped to one of the villages which had been taken over by Taylor's rebels. 
The Taylor men stole her food, stole her clothes, and then raped and killed her 13-year-old daughter. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know what I always say, right? You can ignore your trauma and hope it disappears, but the only way forward is to deal with it. Life keeps throwing curveballs at all of us. Fireballs, speedballs, too many balls. <laughs> and when you're overwhelmed, you're not at your best and it affects your interactions with the people you care about. So how do you deal with it all? Call your therapist like I do. Yes, Dupy friends, I'm a BetterHelp happy customer. I've been using their services since way before we even started this podcast. I can attest to the fact that Sandra is, uh, shall we say, a much lovelier person to be around. <laughs> oh, shut up. Also, my therapist will love hearing that. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, it's affordable, it's flexible, and most importantly, it's entirely online. And you'll get 10% off of your first month if you sign up at betterhelp.com dubious, or just click that link in the episode notes. Yes, and then you can talk to your therapist whenever and however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. So do yourself a favor, take care of your mental health, because when you feel empowered, you are prepared to take on everything life throws at you. Visit BetterHelp.com dubious to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash dubious. Just, I don't know. That you can't say anything. Yes. It's just, I mean, it's like no matter who you land on, it's the worst person in the world if you are in her shoes. Yes. And the Firestone people who could have you know, contributed to calming the spirits because they did have influence in the region and it was all about money and this could have been solved with money, this conflict. That's the thing because, I mean, yes. I, they were just playing golf and playing cards and eating, I don't know, whatever the f*** is that rich people eat for brunch. Anyway, at the same time, Firestone was also negotiating with Taylor's commanders on the terms by which they could return to Liberia. So they were focused on their own interests, you know, the raped 13-year-olds yes. and the little dead babies carried by their raped mothers after the fathers had been killed. I mean, it's insane. Ensminger, the one who had refused to try to protect his own workers from the random violence that came to the Firestone plantation, was himself eventually threatened with an RPG pointed at House 53 while he stood on the front porch. Good. Now, the tailor man holding the RPG demanded $1,000 and a new car. Esminger negotiated him down to $200 and the oldest truck that the company had on site. I mean, I mean even for his own life, like how, how cheap. With your own life your flashing own life. before your yes. eyes, it's like, no, all I got 200 I mean, not 1000 And that was an RPG. That was not a knife, okay? I mean. Yes, he would have killed the whole house. <laughs> yes. At that point, Esminger and the other foreign employees of Firestone had seen enough and, you know, they fled the country. But it wasn't long before Firestone was trying to negotiate a truth with Taylor to reopen the plantation, of course. A short time after Ensminger ordered everyone to abandon the plantation, the Japanese company Bridgestone bought Firestone for $2.6 billion and they wanted the profits back up 
to their former levels. So they sent Ensminger to negotiate the truth with Taylor. Now, some of the commanders demanded bribes before even allowing him to speak to Taylor, but Ensminger refused to pay them. I mean, this guy. When Taylor and Ensminger eventually meet via a meeting arranged by the U.S. ambassador to Liberia, Taylor responded to Ensminger's introduction with the question, oh, he works for the embassy now? To which the ambassador, Pete and John DeVos, replied, no, America works for him. <laughs> I mean, that's American foreign policy in a nutshell, yes. Yes, corporations have the power, yes. Exactly. But in any case, Firestone did not give up on their prized plantation, as Sandra said, when Ensminger refused to budge on paying Taylor until Taylor's revolution was successful in overthrowing the government in Monrovia, they simply fired Ensminger and replaced him with John Shrimp, a chemical engineer who had been promoted to head of HR for the Firestone Company. <laughs> Which is probably to say he wasn't a very good chemical engineer if they stuck him in the HR if department, you, up, you know? Yeah, if, yes, if you end up looking at resumes and stuff, yeah, you studied chemistry. <laughs> it means you failed at whatever you were doing before, usually. Yeah. So, any case, Shrimp struck a deal with Taylor that involved Firestone paying to build a port facility in a region that Taylor was in control of. Firestone would also rebuild all of the damaged equipment and facilities on the rubber plantation, and Taylor's men would return all of the buildings and equipment that they had stolen from Firestone. On January 27th of 1992, the new Japanese CEO of Firestone, Yoichiro Kazaki, approved the deal. On the very same day that Firestone agreed to terms with Taylor, his rebels were stealing the last of the vehicles from the plantation, looting the towns within the plantation's borders, and torturing two former Firestone employees who lived within the plantation boundaries. And by the end of 1992, Firestone had paid Taylor's revolutionary army of rapists and murderers and child soldiers about $2.3 million in taxes. There was also $35.3 million spent on repairing the damage to the rubber plantation itself, and $12.3 million spent on food, pensions, labor settlements, and, quote, miscellaneous obligations and expenses. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we can only imagine what those were, but one can probably assume that the miscellaneous line is our boy, Victor Boot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All of these things got Taylor started in other ventures, too, such as poached lumber and blood diamond mines. The State Department estimated that by 1996, Taylor was bringing in around $75 million per year to avoid violating the U.S. foreign corrupt practices laws and all of this. Firestone paid Taylor in rubber, which would then be smuggled over to the Ivory Coast and sold by Taylor's people there. And, you know, Taylor held his end of the bargain with Firestone, so he appointed a mercenary officer from Gambia to guard the Firestone plantation, along with 300 soldiers who Firestone paid, housed, and fed. Firestone also paid local employees per their arrangement with Taylor, half in local currency and half in US dollars, which provided Taylor's makeshift government with currency liquidity. And during a visit by embassy staff in October of 1992, the new Firestone field overseer, for lack of a better title, 
pointed out to the new U.S. ambassador to Liberia that certain parts of the plantation were, quote, off-limits to Firestone. Speaking of our boy Victor, at this time, airplanes landed in the middle of the night at the nearby airport, according to Firestone employees. Of course they did. <laughs> of course they did. Trucks covered with tarps went to and from the airport during the night. And the boy brigades commented when airplanes landed that, quote, our weapons will come. And as Andre Baptiste had a sadistic son at his side in the version of Liberia depicted in the film Lord of War, so did Charles Taylor have a sadistic son, too. Yes, he did. Chucky Taylor is the only American civilian who has ever been convicted and sentenced to prison in the United States for torturing people abroad. As a teenager, his mother, Charles Taylor's former American girlfriend, sent him to live with his father during the Liberian Civil War in the 1990s. And Taylor put his son with a unit commanded by Bill Horace, a man who rose in importance in Taylor's army after marrying Taylor's sister. And besides the usual from Taylor's army, you know, gang rapes, torture, murder of civilians, Bill Horace had a particular habit that got him international press. He crucified people. There are first-hand accounts of Bill Horace, Chucky Taylor, and the rebel troops they commanded constructing makeshift crosses and nailing people to them who they caught looting for sustenance from an abandoned palm oil plantation. When people began to report Bill and Chucky's sadistic practices to Taylor, he saw them as a liability which could cause him bad international press. Now, when Bill discovered that he was going to be cast out of the Taylor army at best or arrested and executed at worst, he fled the country and some journalists at McLean's found him living in Toronto, Canada in 2010. Predictably, Bill was attending a white Pentecostal church in Toronto <laughs> named Rima Christian Ministries, which has international missions in places like Africa, Eastern Europe, and your home countries uh, is specifically mentioned in their PR material, Romania. <laughs> of course it is. I mean, these people are so predictable. And now look, we do have like, I know there were like a lot of people trying to convert other people in my country. Like we had all these people, including the Mormons. I don't know. It's kind of difficult. I'll tell you this much. People in Europe and Eastern Europe, if we hear Baptist, and I, I, I mean this in all honesty, if we hear Baptist, Pentecostal, all this stuff, like we look at them as cults, really. So it's very hard to actually, you know, and they, they are known to actually give people incentives like, look, if you join our church, we might help you go to the United States. And some people did that just so that they can have somebody to sponsor them to come here. But like, no, it doesn't really work on Romanians. Not too well. Well, show me a white evangelical pastor with a private jet in interest in Africa, and I'll show you somebody acting as a middleman in the blood diamond trade, for sure. Yes, exactly, for sure. And anyways, all of this led up to Taylor's last attempted assault on the capital city of Monrovia. Children with AK-47s and grenades were sent to run across mud flats as a front-line assault with improvised rubber sandals on, which Taylor's mercenaries jokingly called four-wheel drive. I mean, they're even making fun of this. Yes, like, you funny. are sending kids 
yeah, imagine a group of kids who you know are all going to be dead in three minutes, and you laugh at them as you send them out to run into the fray with their grenades and their AK-47. Yeah, no, there are no words. Like, I don't know what to say. But anyway, a convent was destroyed, and five American nuns from a Catholic order in Illinois were killed by Teller's men, and ultimately the Firestone Plantation itself was bombed by the Nigerian Air Force because it was a legitimate target. It was Taylor's base for his entire military operation. That's where he ran things from, and 42 people were killed and 200 were injured in that bombing raid. And Mary Polly, the woman we mentioned earlier who had seen her husband murdered, her 13-year-old daughter raped and murdered by Taylor's mercenaries too, and her 3-year-old son dead while she hid in the jungle, had returned to her home on the Firestone plantation by this time. So Firestone managers told her that because her husband was dead and she was no longer an employee, she was to be evicted from the Firestone housing. And then she moved just outside of the plantation and therefore avoided the air attacks by the Nigerian Air Force. But she mentions having to step over bodies of those who died trying to flee from the bombs. So she survived, but just barely. Yes. I guess if there's a lesson in Mary Polly's case, it's that, you know, whatever... Firestone uh, misfortune causes you to be kicked out of the Firestone plantation. That's a blessing, actually. You should be thankful for being kicked out of the Firestone plantation. But at this point, finally, Firestone had seen enough. They decided to abandon the rubber plantation in Liberia again. The commander of the Nigerian Air Force refused to apologize for bombing the plantation or refrain from doing so in the future, as long as Taylor was using it as a base from which his assaults on Monrovia could be organized. And without the money from Firestone, after Firestone fled, Taylor's military overthrow of Liberia ultimately fell short. But He wasn't completely defeated. He would still be president of Liberia, even though he failed in his military coup. By this time, with Firestone's money and Victor Boot's guns, he had taken over all of the mass communication equipment in the country. So when the war ended and elections were called, Taylor had infinitely more access to radio and TV for political ads than any of the other candidates did. He even ran ads on TV and radio with the slogan, He killed my ma, he killed my pa, but I'm voting for Charles Taylor. I mean, what in the actual fuck? (laughs) (laughs) So Taylor won the presidential election called in 1997. This is absolutely surreal. The level to which people can be brainwashed as well. It's insane. Yes, it is. There's actually a VHS video of Sergeant Doe, the former president who Taylor was trying to overthrow, being tortured and executed within the presidential palace in Monrovia by the soldiers of Prince Johnson, one of Taylor's commanders who later split off and formed a rival rebel faction. People sold the VHS tape around Africa like it was some sort of sadistic entertainment. I mean, there are even still copies of it on YouTube. I found one the other day. I mean, this is just insane, but it just goes to show that if you are exposed to horrific violence ever since you have been a baby, a child, you get to basically become desensitized. You kind of think this is normal. You laugh at it. You make jokes. It's insane. And 
As for Taylor, he wasn't president for long. A second civil war began in 1999 and the coalition of the armies of the surrounding countries forced him out of office. So Taylor fled to Nigeria and Chucky fled to Trinidad. Now, Chucky fancied himself a potential rapper at one point, but both he and his father were eventually arrested and extradited to face war crime trials. Both were convicted and they are serving life sentences. Taylor Sr. is in prison in England and Chucky is in prison in Kentucky in the United States. By the end of the Second Liberian Civil War, 250,000 people had been killed and over a million fled the country as refugees. And today, the Firestone Rubber Plantation is back in business. Of course they are. Yeah, of course they are. <laughs> they returned after Taylor fled the country in the early 2000s. And in 2005, the International Labor Rights Fund filed a lawsuit in the U.S. on behalf of workers at the Firestone Plantation alleging, quote, forced labor, the equivalent of modern slavery at the Firestone Rubber Plantation in Liberia. In 2006, the U.N. mission in Liberia released a report stating that the Firestone Company makes no effort to restrict child labor on its Liberia rubber plantation, and that the company production quotas effectively force adult employees to put their children to work alongside them every day in the endless rows of rubber trees. Well, we can't really say we hope you all enjoyed this story, I suppose, because like we said, it's pretty grim. Yes, it's grim, but I, I mean, I feel like it was a story we needed to do. And this is not the only one. There are so many stories about American corporations doing horrific things and, you know, not even endorsing things like murders and stuff, basically kind of causing them by being in the middle of things and being there and trying to make more profit and causing all these factions to fight each other for money and for supremacy or using them. You know, this is the thing. Firestone could have easily helped to solve this situation faster, but no, they just wanted the money. And that was their end goal. I mean, that guy who was aimed at with the uh, RPG, I mean, in the faith of death, his own death, right? He still negotiated from $1,000 to $200. And this is the essence of what these people are. Yeah. I mean, that's what gets me about the story of Firestone and Charles Taylor it's how similar they really are. Because, I mean, let's be honest. I don't think Charles Taylor was personally raping women or personally beheading villagers or personally crucifying starving refugees who stole you know, palm oil from an abandoned plantation. I mean, as we said, he even got rid of Bill Horace when he found out what Bill and Chucky were doing to those refugees. He was just managing all of this and turning a blind eye in the same way that his private American business education taught him to manage the money and ignore the consequences. You know, and it's the same way that Firestone isn't personally whipping the backs of the children that are harvesting the rubber from the trees. No, they're, they're just, just harvesting the profit. Yes, let's they're be just honest. managing it mm -hmm. from a plantation house with a golf course nearby, three miles down the road. You know, they're just managers. Yes, exactly. Yes. And also, it's it's. I, I feel like Firestone has more responsibility in this situation. I mean, besides the whole uh, slavery situation, in the context of 
this genocide and the killings and the rapes and everything. Their only focus the entire time was profit, to make more money and to profit on the backs of these people, no matter how many of them died. It just, they were like merchandise. That's the thing. They didn't look at them as human. And yeah, and look, let's be honest. If there was nobody there to pay Victor Boot, Victor Boot would not bring that many grenades and that many RPGs. Exactly. I mean, somebody's funding the whole situation. Right. Um, Well, what's the dubimeter for Firestone and the African Warlord? I mean, so it is a very shocking and sad and heartbreaking story. But am I so surprised that uh, an American corporation does this overseas? No, not really. No, not really. So... But am I so surprised that very few people know about this company's history? Yes, I am. You know, like, uh, this is a big name, Firestone, right? You see it. uh, Everybody recognized that logo, right? Right. So is it dubious that all these corporations have such a good PR department and their image is so pristine in the West when, in fact, their profits are based on, let's say, best case scenario, on really unethical practices? in poor developing countries. So yeah, for that, it's a 10. So I'm going to say overall, my dubimeter for this episode would be like a 7.5. Yeah. Humans are really awful creatures, aren't we? (laughs) Yes, we are. We are not. Don't get me started. We're also the only species that destroys its own habitat. There is no other species. And when people say, oh, he behaves like an animal, don't compare humans to animals. Animals don't kill for pleasure. They do not rape. Animals only hunt, you know, to survive. So, yeah. Anyways, the point is we are really the worst, the worst species that ever existed on this planet. Well, this is depressing. This was all depressing. It is. It's depressing. (laughs) Forgive us, people. We just wanted, like, the subject is good. We didn't think it was going to be so bad. We warned you. But I feel like now after we talked about it, I I feel a little down. Say something funny, Neil. I don't know. It was too good not to do. Uh, it's a, it's really a fascinating story because you get to see all this stuff up close because of Firestone's records that still survive. And, um, you know, we talked about in the Victor Boot episode that Andre Baptiste was really the best character in the movie. So naturally, we wanted to do this episode after. But, um, yeah, uh, solving the problems of colonialism by starting a colony in hindsight not very good idea. Yes, it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> no, it just did not work. So that's all we have for Charles and Chucky, the African warlords who befriended the Firestone Tire Company and managed to overthrow Liberia twice. Yeah, so pretty much that's what we have for this episode. So thank you guys again for listening to us. And next episode is going to be funnier. We promise a better, more uplifting story. We'll find something. So see you guys on the next episode.